So this is our 12th look at the book of Proverbs, and what we know so far is that the book of Proverbs teaches you that you can either be wise or you can be a fool in life. Um, so there's our positive statement for the night. Uh, well, originally, we were going to squarely focus on addiction tonight, but as I was uh, thinking about addiction and looking, reading through the whole of Proverbs and looking at text about addiction, there, there aren't very many, actually, that directly address it. Um, but I, I noticed a few things. One, I found a really helpful definition from a theologian uh, who's also a psychologist about addiction, and he, he says this, addiction is an enslaving, destructive, external dependency on some object in this world that when mistreated causes deep harm to your body and soul. I found that a pretty good definition. Uh, but pro- in Proverbs, uh, when it ad- does address addiction specifically, it addresses it alongside all sorts of other aches and sins. And there's a primary theme common to all of them, and that's that they manifest a broken heart. Uh, and I was talking to Alistair I, who preached on the sins of speech you know, a month or so ago, after he preached, and he said, as he was preparing for the sermon on speech, which he prepared for for a long time and read through the book of Proverbs a few times, um, he said the thing that he noticed most was that the book of Proverbs talks about the heart on every page, every column, constantly. It mentions heart many, many times, 75 or so times, I found as I was reading through Proverbs again this week. And the main idea in Proverbs about the human heart, the thing it talks most about, the human heart, something so fundamental, really, to the whole book, is that the human heart is broken. Uh, Sometimes it uses the phrase, the wounded spirit, or the heart that aches. And uh, the the broken heart, so that's the title tonight. And uh, we're not specifically talking about breakups, like girlfriend-boyfriend breakups with the broken heart, which is the way we use that phrase most often today, but that is included, for sure, amongst many other things. Uh, but what we're really talking about, actually, is psychology. Um, psychology, and I'm not a psychologist, but the study of the inner life, the study of the human psyche, of the inner self, uh, the, the Bible has a ton to say about what we call psychology today, uh, long before that science ever developed about the human psyche. And Proverbs has a ton to say about it, and it, it talks about the heart or the spirit. So we're going to look at this tonight. The human heart, the primacy of the heart, the broken heart, the healing heart, and the wise heart. And if you were counting, that was five things. Uh, and five, I, I don't think I've ever preached on five points in a sermon here. It's always three, and sometimes two, but tonight is five. <clears throat> but don't, don't be afraid, because three of those points are two minutes or less. Okay, so it's, it's two points and three little ones, so don't worry. Um, first, the human heart. The Bible mentions the heart literally hundreds of times and almost 1,000 times. It mentions the heart. It's a little Hebrew word, leb, L-E-B, very simple. Um, and almost never in the entire Bible is the heart, does the word heart refer to the internal organ, the, muscu- the muscular organ that pumps blood throughout your circulatory system. Uh, only maybe three times in the whole Bible. 
And that makes sense because the way we use the word heart today is the exact same, right? Uh, you almost never mean the muscle, probably, when you use the word heart. In your daily speech, we say in modern day, we give heart to hearts whenever we're about to start a new relationship. Uh, we talk from the bottom of our hearts. We talk about people who have hearts of gold. We talk about people who have cold hearts and hearts of stone. Uh, our heart goes out to all of those who are suffering, right? We use the word heart in tons of different ways. And that's exactly the same way the Bible did it. And English probably does it because the Bible did it first. Uh, so what's the, what, what does Proverb mean, mean by the word, the concept of the heart? Chapter 14, verse 10 the heart knows its own bitterness, and no stranger shares its joy. The heart knows its own bitterness, no stranger shares its joy. What is he saying? The author there is, is saying this, only you know the true bitterness of your own heart, or the true joy of your heart. In other words, the principle underneath, the point underneath that, is that you have an inner self that is completely invisible. You have an inner self, a part of you that nobody else can see. That's not external. Only your heart knows your bitterness. Only your heart knows your joys. Right? There's part of you nobody... In other words, another positive statement tonight. No one truly knows you. No one truly knows who you are. There's a whole world inside of you that is invisible, that nobody external to you has ever seen before. Your inner conversations, your thought life, and it dominates so much of who you are. For, uh, oh, uh, by the way, Augustine, St. Augustine, the great early church theologian, he calls this the inner self. So I'll be calling it the inner self quite often uh, tonight. Chapter 14, verse 13. Even in laughter, the heart may ache, and the end of joy may be grief. Even in laughter, the heart may ache. So what's, it, what's he saying? He's saying that just because you laugh on the outside doesn't manifest necessarily what's happening in your inner self. And everybody knows this. Right? We do it at church all the time. You come and you smile and you laugh and you, and you have nice banter, but we all know that people might be broken on the inside and hurting on the inside. In other words, the inner self, it's invisible. Just because you manifest something externally doesn't necessarily mean that that's what's happening on the inside. And so there's a distinct inner life. You can be as gentle as a kitten, as a newborn kitten on the outside, and on the inside be as angry and disgruntled as the most angry rattlesnake. Maybe you've never seen an angry rattlesnake. I've seen an angry rattlesnake in person, and I can tell you that they're very angry. Uh, the external and the internal, they're different. They're different. You, have, you live in two worlds, so to speak, that are connected. So, point one, all point one means is this. When the Bible normally speaks of heart or spirit, it's referring to the inner self, the inner life, the core of your personality. It includes your inner conversations that you have with yourself all the time, that you're having with yourself right now. Um, your desires, your loves, your biggest hopes, and your deepest flaws. That's the heart. And the, that's what the heart in the Bible. Okay, that's, that's point one. Point two. The primacy of the heart. The primacy of the heart. And all, all we mean to say here is that the inner life, the heart, is incredibly important to pay attention to. Um, so Proverbs 18, verse 14. A man's spirit will endure sickness, 
but a crushed spirit who can bear. A man's spirit can endure a sickness, but a crushed spirit, in other words, cannot bear, cannot bear anything. Um, what, what the author is saying is this. If you have a cheerful heart, if you have a heart that is at peace and strong, then no matter what circumstances come your way, even the most vile sickness, a man's spirit can endure sickness, then the circumstances don't change the condition of your heart. Your heart determines how you feel about all circumstances. In other words, a secure, safe, strong heart can go out into the world and experience anything and be okay. Not that it doesn't have sorrows, but can be okay, it can be strong. But a crushed spirit, if you have a crushed inner life, deep, deep, deep problems in the inner life, then circumstances dictate exactly how you feel. When things are good in your life, you feel good. And when things are bad in your life, you feel terrible, right? And in the modern world, uh, the basic spirit is that circumstances are the complete determination of our happiness, our failures and our successes. That's what determines our happiness. And the Bible's saying no. If you place primacy on your inner life, focusing on giving grace, on the means of graces of grace for your inner life, then you can go out into the world in any circumstance and remain strong. That's the point of 1814. In other words, so much of your life is dominated by what happens inside your head. Uh, you spend all of your time in your inner thoughts, in your inner conversation, right? You're only occupied with external things part of the time. You're not always in conversation with people. And much of your life, you're asleep. But even in the moments that you're asleep, your inner life is still raging. It's still happening. The conversations, the dreams, all of it. The inner life is so important. And if you neglect it, you neglect it to your demise. That's the point here. Third, uh, the broken heart. Why should we prioritize focusing on our inner self, on our heart, our spirit? Why should we prioritize it? And the answer in the book of Proverbs, and this is our primary point tonight, point three, is that it's because the human heart is broken. The human heart is broken. Uh, Proverbs says it all over the place. Proverbs, the heart aches, the spirit is wounded, the heart is crushed, the heart is rotting. The heart is, and these are things, aspects of the heart where you can be wounded by things that happen to you. The heart is anxious, bears grief, is sorrowful, and is depressed. And then these are things that you do inside your inner self, things that are what it calls rot. The heart is envious, addicted, prideful, and hateful. Okay, so those are all the different verbs the book of Proverbs uses for the broken heart. And so one of the main conversations about in the psychology world uh, today, in the 21st century, that you guys have heard for sure, is conversations about where human problems, the core of human problems, the kind of problems that happen in our heart of hearts, anxieties and depressions and, 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 and sins of envy and, and anger and all sorts of things. Why does that happen to us? Where do these problems come from? And there are basically two extreme answers to that question. On the one hand, there's the answer that you might call the left or the liberal answer, uh, 
whatever that might mean, but the liberal answer, and that's that people have deep problems in this world because of things that happen to them, right? That people are fundamentally victims of their childhood, of how they were treated as a child, of their context, of their environment, of issues of esteem that have come from the outside, of biological issues that affect your inner psychology. Uh, That's the position on the left, that fundamentally our problems come from the outside. The problems of our heart come external to us. And then on the opposite end of the extreme, which is where Christians more often than not land, is that they say, no, the problems, deep human problems, deep anxieties or whatever, those are moral issues. And if you have that, that's something that you've done, that you've chosen, that you've acted on. And that's a problem fundamentally not with what's outside of you, but what's with you, right? And what does the book of Proverbs say? To quote Facebook, which is always a reliable source, uh, it's complicated. It's complicated. Uh, The answer is yes. (laughs) The book of Proverbs recognizes all of those things. It's super complex, right? The Proverbs has a really intricate and impressive psychology, a, a study of the human psyche, a theology of the inner self. It's complicated, right? Uh, so, for instance, the, the outside, just let me give you a couple examples of, of what it talks about. How our broken hearts come from external circumstances, that we are indeed victims. Yes, Proverbs affirms that. Uh, chapter 14, verse 30. A peaceful heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. A peaceful heart gives life to your flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Now, this is so modern, it's so aware, it's so up-to-date, it's so ancient and so contemporary at the very same time, because what's being said here is that there is indeed a biological aspect to the problems of the human heart. A peaceful heart can give life to your flesh. That's the word for physical flesh. But envy can make your bones rot, right? In other words, what it's saying is that human beings are some psychosomatic whole, as we say. That things that happen inside of your inner life manifest in embodied problems, right? Um, and that the reverse is true. That biological issues can actually cause issues of the inner self, issues of the heart, right? Uh, for instance, um, if you have... If your thyroid isn't working properly, and this is just according to the medical communities of today, basic. If if your thyroid isn't functioning properly, if you don't have uh, whatever, I can't remember, whatever thyroid produces, somebody will tell me afterwards, I have no doubt, uh, then it can make you want to commit suicide over the long haul. It can cause deep depression. Your biology affects something like deep depression. That's That's an absolute fact. Right, there's, and, and Proverbs is not afraid to affirm that. But at the same time, it's, it says at the end of that passage, envy will make your bones rot. And we all know this is true as well. If you've ever suffered with long-term indwelling sin, it can cause manifestations of outward sickness, right? Or if you struggle with a lot of deep anxiety and worry, it can make, your, it can make you sick, right? This has probably happened to many of us that there's a psychosomatic union that Proverbs is well aware of. A second passage, chapter 25, verse 20, and this is just more generally about circumstances, how external circumstances affects us. This is a really fun one. 
um, whoever sings songs, Mary's songs, it should say, to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and puts vinegar on soda. Okay. Um, in other words, it's saying that when, the, when it uses the phrase, whoever sings Mary's songs to a heavy heart, it's referring to a person that comes and sings jingle bells at Christmas to the wife who's just lost her husband. Right? Uh, external circumstances break hearts. And there are moments in life where jingle bells is not appropriate. It doesn't help. Instead, what it says it does is it's like taking off their outer garment in the middle of winter. It makes them cold as ice. Or it says, and this is the best one, it's like putting vinegar on soda. <clears throat> now, I don't know exactly what they're, what they're referring to there. If soda means what we call baking soda today, maybe I'm going to go with that. Because maybe you've done this. I've done this hundreds of times, literally, when I was in early secondary school and late primary school. But if you take a, a two-liter bottle and you put vinegar in it and then you pour baking soda in it, right? Have people done this? I hope so. It's amazing. Uh, you, you screw it on as tight as you can. You shake it up, and it will explode in your hand. We used to, there was a to- toilet bowl cleaner in the States that had some kind of compound in it, we figured out. It was very off-brand, you know, really terrible. And if you used th- that instead of baking soda, you could get a two-liter bottle to shoot literally to the end of the neighborhood. I mean, it was unbelievable. Um, but Proverbs, they're, they're aware of this science. This is exactly what they're saying. They're saying that when you sing a Mary song at the wrong time to somebody that's been broken by external circumstances, it causes an explosion, you see, vinegar on soda. Um, that's what they're saying. In other words, it's simply saying external circumstances have a, are really matter when it comes to the condition of our hearts. That they can cause deep sorrows, depressions, anxieties, all sorts of things. Um, and then thirdly and finally for this point, this is the ultimate. This is the ultimate statement in Proverbs about external consequences. 14.13, Even in laughter, a heart is sad, and the end of happiness is grief. Even in laughter, a heart is sad in the end of happiness and grief. And what's he, this is an incredibly morbid proverb because it's saying that everybody, even the happiest people you know, even the Colin Armstrongs in your life, right? Uh, if you know Colin, um, ultimately has a broken heart. We can't relativize it. It says, even in laughter, the, the human heart is sad and at, the, and at the end of all happiness is grief. Uh, it's, you think of the best moments of your, of your life, the best people around you, the, the best dinners, the best Christmas dinners, and, and, uh, or whatever. The, the laughs end up, they stop. The, the best books come to an end. Uh, and humans ultimately have to watch people around them die as they look down the barrel of their own demise. And you say, thanks. Uh, I didn't come for that tonight. But look, look that's, what, that's what he's saying here in the book of Proverbs. The end of all happiness is, is ultimately grief. And what does he mean by that? He's talking about death. He's talking about death. 
and uh, death. And there are tons of people walking around the streets of Edinburgh tonight and in our city that think that the grave is the only goal, that are looking down the barrel at their own demise, at death, but they want so badly a life that has meaning, uh, a life that has purpose, a life that is ultimately, when you weigh it at the end, more happy than it was sad. And the book of Proverbs is saying that's not, that's not reality. That's not facing the facts. That's not coming up against reality. That's not being brave enough to be consistent enough to say if our lives ultimately have no meaning uh, in the end, if the grave is only gold, then life has no meaning now. Uh, in other words, everybody, no matter what they believe, no matter what they think about God in the end of all things, um, longs for what the great, one of the great theologians of the 20th century, Karl Barth, said, a far-off country that they have never visited. A land without disease, disaster, and death. And C.S. Lewis puts it this way, in the weight of glory, speaking of this far-off country. He says, there's a secret in every one of you. It's a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience or our circumstances. He says, we find beauties and we find joys in books and music or whatever, but the true object of our desires is not in the books. It's not in the music. The best parts of this life, books, music, whatever, They're not the thing itself. They're only the scent of a flower that we have never found. They're the echo of a tune that we have never heard. It's news from a far-off country that we have not yet visited. The aching heart, the broken heart, the wounded heart longs for a circumstance, a land, a place that is beyond the bounds of death, disaster, disease, and destruction. Our hearts ache because circumstances matter. And the circumstances of this world are broken. It produces broken hearts. But why are they so broken, our circumstances? And Proverbs is nuanced. It doesn't just say we're victims. It also focuses on the inside, the internal, the inner life. It says we have broken hearts because our hearts are broken. What does that mean? Uh, In other words, the world of sorrows that we live in that breaks our hearts, the external circumstances that come in and break us, they exist because the human heart broke the world in the first place. See, the things that come in and break us from the outside exist only because the human heart first broke the world. It broke circumstances. It broke our experiences. And so this is what Proverbs says also about the heart. Not only can it be crushed from the outside, but the heart is wicked, deceitful, perverse, crooked, haughty, prideful, bitter, envious, hateful, and addicted. And so it's not simple. It's it's not simple. It's, It's not saying one or the other. It's not saying the extreme right or the extreme left. In the book of James, we read uh, James chapter 1, verse 13 to 15 earlier. James, of course, is the Proverbs of the New Testament. And it offers a psychology of sin in the book of Proverbs, of the heart. And in in verse 13, this is what James says, Let no one say, I am being tempted by God. 
In other words, what he's saying is no one can say that the fault of my sin is my circumstance. Circumstances, James is saying, does not cause us to sin. Let nobody say in any circumstance that, that they're being caused to sin, tempted to sin by God. Verse 14, but people are enticed by their own desires. Desire conceived gives birth to sin. In other words, there's a difference in circumstances and what truly causes us to sin. Uh, and he says that what truly causes us to sin is our deep desires. In other words, why do you sin? You sin because you want to. You sin because you want to. Your sin is not something that somebody made you do. You sin because you wanted to. It's a manifestation of the deepest desires of the human heart. Uh, I used this illustration when I taught on James 1 last year, but you don't remember, so I'll use it again. Um, many of you have taken like accountancy exams or law exams or investment exams or whatever, any type of qualification and imagine that you go in and you bomb it. You completely blow it and you fail and you get the results. And if you're being honest with yourself, you ask yourself, why did I fail? Why did I do so poorly? And you're being honest. None of you are ever going to say, I failed it because they tested me. If they wouldn't have tested me, I wouldn't have failed. Right? And, and that's true. If you wouldn't have been tested you wouldn't have failed. But the real reason, what's the real reason that you failed? It's your fault. You didn't do the work. You didn't prepare, right? It's not the circumstance. It's not the test itself. The moment of the test is not the cause of our sin. We sin, we sin because we want to. Uh, in other words, circumstances give occasion to expose our sinfulness, our broken hearts. And Francis Spufford puts it this way, What we're talking about here is not just our tendency to lurch and to stumble and to mess up by accident, our passive role as agents of entropy in this world. Instead, it's our active inclination to break stuff. Stuff here means promises, relationships, our well-being, and the well-being of others. You are a being, he writes, whose desires make no sense. They don't harmonize. We are equipped more far, uh, far more for farce and tragedy than we are for happy endings. You're a human, and that's where we live. Normal experience, the aching heart, the promise-breaking heart. So, there's two senses to the broken heart. We have broken hearts because of the sorrows of this world, the external circumstances. But at the core, Genesis 3, uh, the human heart is what broke the world. It's what created the circumstances, the situation of sin and brokenness. So Christians, Proverbs, can say, with the left, with the most extreme, absolutely human beings are victims of circumstances, and that biology and all sorts of factors play into the mess of, of human deep heart problems. And at the same time, with the right, I can say it's my fault. And both of those things are true at the very same time. We don't have to choose one or the other. Um, There's no healing. There's no healing without confession, without being willing to say, I'm at fault. There's no healing without confession. So so fourthly, a five and five is only one minute. Um, is Is there hope 
Is there a cure for the broken heart? Is there a cure for this situation? These are the three worst Proverbs in the book of Proverbs, okay? So brace yourself. Uh, 11.20, those who have crooked hearts are an abomination to the Lord. Chapter 16, verse 2, all the ways of a human being are pure in their own eye, but the Lord weighs the truth, the Spirit. In 20, chapter, nine, chapter 20, verse 9, Who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from my iniquities? Of course, the answer that's implied there is no one. In other words, what these three Proverbs tell, tell us is that God looks beyond your external actions. He looks at the deepest, inmost parts of your inner life. The, in, the conversations you have with yourself, your deepest desires, and that every single one of us is found wanting. It says here that he weighs our spirit in the balance, in the scales of justice. Uh, this is what the Sermon on the Mount was about. So in the Sermon on the Mount, of course, Jesus is saying, all of you think and, and say that, you know, you can honestly say, I've kept the Ten Commandments, Right? I have not committed adultery. People, people, he was addressing people who were saying this. I've not committed adultery. I've not stolen. I've not murdered. And he's saying, but God sees your inner life. At the core of who you are, sin, is, it, you have a crooked heart. It doesn't matter if you've never committed adultery. You've done it in your heart, right? He's, that's what the whole Sermon on the Mount was trying, to, was trying to teach, that God weighs the inner self, the inner life, not just the smiles and the external manifestations of who you are. He sees everything. Um, in addition to the three worst Proverbs, so to speak, in the book of Proverbs, there are three Proverbs that refer really peculiarly to the tree of life. Uh, I'll only offer you one. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness breaks the heart. Uh, in other words, it's saying that a, a healing heart, a heart that's being healed from corruption and brokenness, is compared here to a tree of life. And the meaning is pretty simple on the surface. A gentle tongue is a tree of life. A perverse tongue breaks the spirit. In other words, when you say a kind word to somebody, it can actually heal their heart in a way. But a perverse word, a corrupted word, breaks their spirit. Uh, but that gentle word, that kind word, the author is saying, is a tree of life. One commentator says, this is such an odd comparison to make. The tree of life, it's not just some random phrase, random comparison. This is an instance of cosmic nostalgia. This is an instance of cosmic nostalgia. The, the author here is imagining through just the kindness of words a far-off country, a hope of a land beyond the broken heart. What's the tree of life? The tree of life is, uh, in Genesis chapter 2, it's a sacrament in the Garden of Eden. It's a sign, and, a, and it's a thing and a symbol that speaks of blessed life, of perfection, of life without disease and death, disaster and destruction, a life 
without broken hearts and wounded spirits. Uh, a kind word, cosmic nostalgia of a time, a tree of blessed perfections. Uh, you may be interested to in, find out that in the New Testament speaks also of trees quite often. Uh, oftentimes in the New Testament, it does not refer to the cross by the name cross, but it refers to Jesus' cross, the cross that Jesus Christ died on, as a tree. Paul does it all the time. He speaks not of the cross of Christ, but the tree of Christ in Greek. Uh, and at the end of Genesis 3, um, Adam and Eve, after they had sinned, were not permitted, if you remember, to eat of the tree of life. It was closed off to them. In other words, the blessed perfection of Eden is not yours because your heart is broken. Uh, and then at the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 22, there's another tree of life in the Garden of Eden where the, the people of the city of God come and partake. And what it's saying, of course, to us is that the only hope that your heart has for being freed from the wounds and the crooked brokenness is to eat of the tree of life. That's the only hope. That's it. But the beauty is that the tree of life is not simply out there in Revelation 22. Uh, healing is not just entirely future. The tree of life. Wh where else is the tree of life in the New Testament? The tree. The, the tree that he hung on. You see, when Adam and Eve said no to God, when they committed acts of rebellion against God, they chose uh, to reject the tree of life. And because of that, Jesus Christ was hung on the tree of death so that once again you could partake of the tree of life. Where is the tree of life for the Christian? For you, right now, in the 21st century, it's to stand beneath the cross. The cross is the tree of life. Jesus Christ himself is the tree of life. The only way that you can have a healed heart is by partaking of the tree of life. And right now, that is by faith. That's by faith until you reach a better country, a far-off land, a land without d death, disaster, disease, and destruction. What does that mean, uh, to eat by faith? Uh, Chalm Thomas Chalmers puts it this way. There's only two ways a person can overcome their broken, corrupted heart. A deep desire for the evil things of this world uh, th that they can overcome a deep desire for the evil things of this world. They can either overcome the desires of their heart by their own willpower, by leaving this world behind, by separating themselves, hiding, avoiding all external circumstances of temptation, or they can set forth another object, even God in Christ, as a more worthy object of their utmost desires. <clears throat> so let me just... I won't give the full final point. Just one minute and I'll, I'll close. The wise heart. We, what, what we're saying is this. We do indeed have to repent and seek change for the problems in our heart. And that happens first by eating from the tree of life himself, the gospel, Jesus Christ. But the book of Proverbs doesn't leave us there. It also offers an ethic. Uh, it says that actually we, we have to repent and, and act in order to heal our hearts, even in this life while we wait for the future, the garden, to eat of the future tree. Um, let me just read to you a couple of these Proverbs, and, and we'll close. These are, this is what you do now. 
This is human action that you take in the meantime. Uh, the purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw those out. Uh, in other words, what it's saying is your inner self is a deep mystery, but the wise person seeks to know themselves. Do you know yourself? By faith in Christ, walking towards holiness, do you know yourself? Do you explore the deep recesses? Do you understand what your idols are? What the problems of your heart are? So that it says the wise man seeks to know themselves. And then secondly, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise person quietly holds it back. A fool a fool gives full vent to their spirit, but a wise person holds it back. In other words, yes, indeed, your spirit remains corrupt. You are simultaneously justified and a sinner. You remain corrupt, but the wise man holds, holds, holds back their spirit, fights against it, doesn't say any, everything that comes into their mind, knows that they have corrupted and bent and broken thoughts and conversations and dream, even dreams, and fights against them and does what they can to stop them. And then finally... And this is one of the few uh, passages about addiction in the whole of Proverbs. Listen, my son, be wise. Set your heart on the right path. Do not join those who drink too much wine or gorge themselves on meat. For drunkards and gluttons become poor and drowsiness clothes them in rags. In other words, the wise person protects their heart by knowing their idols and not putting themselves in position that the idols can take hold of you. Uh, positions of addiction if you will. So, until you partake in both heart and body of the tree of life, the far-off country, go with Proverbs twenty-three nineteen. Hear, my sons and daughters, be wise, direct your heart in the way that it should go, and it will be well with you. Let's pray. Father, we ask, O oh Lord, that you would give us faith in the eyes of our heart, uh, that you would change our hearts, that we would desire Christ more than sin, that we would long for a better country, and that in the meantime, you would point us uh, towards holiness by being wise, giving us wisdom. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.